Welcome to Meta Talks. This podcast is brought to you by Meta. We support startups, industry and government with sustainable technology-driven innovation. Here you will hear from amazing individuals on topics around startups, innovation, sustainability and dive deeper into industries like aerospace or energy. Today's episode is all about corporate champions and startups. So we will be discussing how startups and startup founders are working with corporates, what the role of the champion is, and our two guests will have some great insights and potentially even tips and tricks to share with us. First, I'd like to welcome Carlton Washburn, systems engineer at Boeing, who is focusing on technology strategy in Boeing Global Services. Prior to this, he was a program manager for Boeing Additive Manufacturing, and he was also a program champion for the ATR Boeing Accelerator. Our second guest is Andrew Wagner, CEO of Authentize, and also the chair of digital manufacturing at Singularity University in Silicon Valley. Authentize delivers data-driven workflow management software for additive manufacturing. First of all, welcome both. Lovely to have you here. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. <laughs> Carlton, do you want to go first and give us a little bit of an introduction? Yeah, so I've spent probably the better part of the last decade on and off working with startups, trying to incorporate their technology into larger companies, bringing something that is transformative, maybe something that breaks something loose or gives us a market entry, something competitive, And taking that magic in a bottle, if you will, and incorporating it into a larger product, more complex system to try to go to market and bring that value to customers. And it's, it's a pathway that's forged with challenges, both from the relationship side on how you take something really big, like a company the size of Boeing, something that's much smaller and more agile and bring them together. Um, and when it works, I think it, it's amazing. It's, it's one of the most satisfying things I've been able to do in my career. That's why I keep doing it. Wonderful. Thank you, Carlton. Over to you, Andre. Yeah, as uh, was said, I, I, I straddle both sides of the kind of corporate and startup. 95% of my time is on Authentize, which really works with a lot of large companies that are trying to deploy a cutting edge software in a cutting edge area, such as additive manufacturing. And on the other side, I do see through my relationship with Singularity University, corporate executives trying to understand where the world is going, trying to figure out how their you know, large systems can adopt these new technologies. So I have great sympathy for the struggles of, of large companies dealing with that. And, and I also, in a previous life, prior to starting Authentize in 2012, um, I ran a venture capital fund. So I also understand the necessity of these kinds of relationships for growth and, and what it entails from a funding perspective. Amazing. Thank you. So maybe we start off um, by almost setting the scene a little bit and, and, and um, with a very easy question, hopefully easy question. Why should established industry work with startups or, or should they? <laughs> I'll kick things off. Yeah. So Really, Gabby, to answer your question in one word, I would say it's speed. So a startup can iterate way faster and can kind of polish that valuable part of the value proposition with less resources than a large company. 
and the time that it takes me to stand up an engineering you know, team and, and get the resources and everything structured and all the project management in place, a startup can go through a half a dozen iterations and they can start to come to conclusions. This is, means that they can go through these learning cycles and get something that is you know, formed. So move from that nebulous stage into something that has some sort of a form before I can even get my team stood up. I think to me, that's one of the biggest reasons why industry should look to a startup. And to, to add to that, I, I think one of the contributors to speed is also having something on the outside of the organization. So, you know, quite often we're not doing something that the organization couldn't do themselves that might be fought by other departments within that business. And so having an organization that's not quite part of the organization, but it's flexible enough to weave itself in and out, you know, there's some innovation at the edge benefit, which also contributes to the speed that Carlton was just talking about. Really, really good point. And I mean, you both know me, I'm obviously um, very excited when it does work out and when startups and, and, and big corporates manage to work together. But there are obviously lots and lots of challenges and barriers. Let's say cultures are really different and we have to learn a lot. If you try to bend a large corporate to a startup way of working, that's not going to end well. So, you know, from anywhere, from insurances to cybersecurity to DevOps to marketing to all the things that where we just run at it, the organization that you're dealing with is going to have requirements. And you have to roughly know what those requirements or what those areas of difference are going to be. So you're prepared with answers. So that's the, the basic challenge that, that an org organization like Authentize faces is that there's very different expectations in a number of very important areas. And so it's your job to understand what those might be and, and how to address those when they come up. The other challenge that I'm finding is that you are frequently at odds with kind of a political system within the large corporate. So there are going to be, even if you have a champion, which is by itself a challenging thing to identify, you're going to have that champion, you know, doesn't represent the whole organization. It's going to be individual team members who have their own priorities and fight tooth and nail that this solution should not be deployed. So, you know, you are constantly marketing, even when you've landed the account, even when you're working with the organization, you're constantly marketing and making sure that your system can be adopted. So those would be two challenges that come immediately to mind. Yeah, and I would I think it was interesting, Andre, that you started with culture. And I think you hit the nail on the head there because what motivates the different companies, the behavioral norms even between a startup and a large company can be very different. At one point, one of my team members pointed out that I dressed differently inside the office than when I actually went up and visited startups. And it's a behavior that I didn't notice, but I was trying to adapt myself to a culture so I could be accepted. But I think you're very right that if you don't recognize that, that challenge can snowball pretty quickly. And maybe a little bit more tactically, one of the things I've seen with working with a lot of startups is the difference between the structure and the processes of a small company versus a large company. So a large company, there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of processes. And if there's not somebody to help a smaller company navigate that, they're going to get stuck. Worst case, they're going to get buried. Because if you get a 100-page document that you need to fill out in two days, I've seen small companies stop everything to do that. And the large companies don't think about how much maybe of a burden something like that is and what it really takes away from what their core mission is. And nonetheless, it's expected, right? That's part of the process. I can't change the process. I can help you navigate it, maybe. That's like a conflict, right? 
Yeah. So yeah, I, I think it is, but it's also an opportunity, right? Like so, there's a a really serious challenge for the startup if they kind of take this requirement and just answer it quickly without having some kind of framework that this requirement can fit into. But at best, you're you're basically duplicating work that you've done elsewhere. At worst, you're creating a structure and promises and commitments that you cannot keep because you have no way of tracking what those commitments are. And so you just from a cybersecurity aspect, for example, there need to be policies in place that ensure that the, the systems, your own company, internal systems are secure. And those are commitments you're making to the large company that you've made those. Now, you know, you're promising those in those 100-page documents that Carlton was just referring to. But if you have no way of actually pushing that through the organization, even if you're only 20 or 30 people, you know, then you've completed, you have these commitments, you've completed the document, you have commitments, and you're almost certainly going to break them the next day. And that's a real risk. But on the, on, the, on the same side, it's a real opportunity. If you take that 100-page document as a kind of learning opportunity to understand where your policies might not be up to scratch, squint and see what is truly important in that 100 pages. It won't all be important. You know, 20 of them will be. And then identify those. You have to fit it within a framework in order to be able to do that. So there's an opportunity here that you can learn and get better, but it's also a massive, massive risk that you're making commitments that you can't keep. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And it, it sounds as if there's a lot of, well, almost preparation that should go in even before you've started talking to a, to a big corporate. Are there any tips or lessons, Andre, that you can share with founders out there that might want to sell into I don't know, Boeing or other big corporates like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I honestly think that the areas of, of potential conflict are like, you can count them on one hand. Insurances, cybersecurity, DevOps would be the first three that come to my mind. But right? these are areas that are going to be where the divergence between corporate norms and startup norms are the greatest, as an example. And so my suggestion would be is to, to form an opinion on those three areas. What are you going to do? Insurances, here's our base insurance if you want any more you have to pay for it. This is the price. You know, cybersecurity, Authentize, for example, made a decision very early on. We are not going to complete an ISO certification because everybody wants a different certification and it's too costly. But we will complete your documents and we will assess ourselves against a framework, which is the cloud compliance matrix in our case. But basically, you have a reason for not doing it and you, ha you have a reason that you can explain, but you're still secure and you still have your own processes. So those are things that where would make a lot of sense for you to form an opinion now and then allow the corporate, when they come to you, it's still a lot of work to deal with the corporate paperwork, but you at least have a framework in which you're going to be putting that. You know how to address their concerns. It's, again, the greatest the areas of greatest potential conflict are relatively limited. You know, identify those early and 50% of the battle is sorted. Thank you. Some really, really good pointers there. And we obviously, through the ATI Boeing Accelerator, and I would almost say that companies that go through that program already have an advantage because they are being put in front of a company like Boeing. But the role of the champion, we as a program team have kind of figured out throughout those two cohorts, and it was a lot more structured in the second cohort than it was for the program that Andre went through. What would you say, Carlton, what is the role of the corporate champion and how have you experienced that process? And maybe if there's other corporates out there listening, how can industry motivate staff to get involved in an initiative like this? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. A large part of what I do as a corporate champion is serve as a translator. 
I had to really distill it down. I have to set expectations internally on what the value of a project or working with a startup is going to bring, how a relationship like that is going to work and where there might be bumps in the road because it is different. I have to cover the org chart from the executives up top all the way to the engineers at the bottom. This It doesn't work in my experience, a top-down drive. You have to cover that, that whole org chart. In fact, one of the phrases that I use is to tell people that this project, this relationship is going to feel kind of jerky, but we're going to do everything we can not to jerk people around. And the reason I say that is because inside of a company that, you know, when you're working with a small startup that is doing these fast learning and these quick projects, a lot of companies aren't used to that level of velocity. In fact, it feels wrong, even though it's like a really good thing. And if that internal team isn't comfortable for what's going to happen and how this is going to work, they're going to act like white blood cells and, and they're going to treat the startup like a foreign object. And that, that's the worst case. I'm trying to avoid that. I can't control success, right? The startup has to control the outcome. They're the ones that own the value proposition and they own their destiny. What I'm trying to do is make sure that they get a fair shake and that the internal team is ready to accept whatever value that comes out of those projects. So in a scenario where you know that the specific departments that will need to be involved have white blood cells for the kinds of projects that you think are valuable and that you have found partners for, would you still try and champion them? Or how do you address that? How do you, how do you deal with a scenario where, where you know that there's white blood cells in the system already? Is that something you have to kind of address at the beginning or do you just get started? Yeah, it, and a lot of that's situation dependent. But at a high level, I, what I would say is every single time I've served as a champion or an investor or managed a project, there's always been white blood cells. I've never had something run smooth. That's just the nature of the world. So some of those are in the beginning and you can read the political landscape. You can understand the competing projects. And so you can form a strategy on how you're going to address that. Oftentimes, though, things kind of pop out as you move along. Things are unexpected, and you don't actually find those until you're moving down that road. And so part of what I have to do is if that's somebody that I missed in the beginning, if they don't understand what's going on, I have to have a one-on-one with them. And that's my approach so that I can understand really where their head is at and what's going on. Because usually those conversations, the way that they, they turn out, Andre, is that somebody feels very threatened, Right. Either their project might get sidelined because something else is coming in. They don't know how this affects them. And my goal, my job here is to turn them from somebody that's working against this to a supporter. Because really, oftentimes, what it is, is that startup has a piece of a puzzle that they need to be successful. They just don't see it like that. And so we gotta, I got to help them understand that, hey, when this is successful, you become successful because you're part of this. And it's a part of a bigger picture that you're working on. Because if you're part of a large company, right, we're not trying to do one tiny thing. We're trying to integrate something and make something a lot more complicated. It's all about threats and then, uh, or people perceiving threats and addressing those early on. Really, your role is a psychologist, isn't it, Carlton? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a bit like it. And and you touched on the fact that the, the success is obviously, um, well, the startup needs to deliver, right? Are there any things you've seen founders or, or startups do that you would say, you know, uh, common mistakes that we can give some of our listeners on their way to not do? Yeah, I've got maybe two things there. And I know Andre is going to jump in on one of these. I'd say the first one is timing. I view the inside of a large company like a market, right? If you've ever gone through marketing and you understand 
segmentation and timing and all that stuff. That's exactly how I view the inside of a large company. Many startups assume that their solution will fit with a problem maybe inside of a Boeing or another large company. And they also assume that Boeing, we have a list somewhere of all of our problems. And if they can just get access to that list, then they can pick the right one and they can align. Such a list does not exist. Connecting problems and solution is a lengthy process. It doesn't always end up the way we intend. It's, it's a discovery for me inside the company because we are so large and complex, just as much as it is for the startup. And the time it takes to go through that process and what bubbles up on a priority list, we don't have control necessarily over. So that outcome is somewhat random, and that's a really bitter pill to swallow for some people. But the, the mistake in there is for you know companies not, not to understand that's a process we're going to go through. We're going to go through to it together. You know, if I'm a corporate champion and I've got a team behind me, we're going to help you. But your problem, the problem you're looking for, that solution that you've developed may or may not be high on our list at any given time. The other common mistake I've seen is a little bit more tactical. Just from reviewing presentations from hundreds and hundreds of startups is one of the trends I've seen is that startups jump into their solution during a pitch without really asking or trying to understand the challenges that we as a company are facing. I kind of think it's maybe a habit come from multiple pitches to raise funding, and that leads to prescribing before diagnosing. But maybe the lesson in there is when you get to the company, you've got to switch the direction of that, and you've got to diagnose and then prescribe. And there's a missed opportunity in there to uncover what we need that they may be able to pivot to. And if that you know meeting ends without an understanding of what the solution and where it goes, you've had a really strong missed opportunity. Mm, really good point. What do you think about that, Andre? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I couldn't agree more, especially in the last point. I see all my mistakes flashing before my eyes as Carlton speaks. Oh, no. <laughs> so thanks for that. Yeah, I know. I just had a shock. In general, I think that the timing is also obviously it contributes to that aspect. I completely identify with different audiences requiring different kinds and styles of presentations. I made that mistake for the first time and most clearly when I became a singularity university speaker and that was that was really you know you can't go in pitching a product pitching an idea you're you're talking about the industry as a whole and so every time you're going you know this is presentation 101 understand your audience and and it's a good thing that Carlton reminds us of that absolutely so sometimes it does go really well. What do you guys think? What does a good partnership look like? And Carlton, maybe, how do you guys measure success internally when it gets to working with startups? I think a good partnership with a startup really has to start with that relationship. When I'm evaluating a company, when I'm evaluating a partnership, one of the boxes that I have to check with the strong yes, no hesitancy, is if I would work for that CEO and if I would join that team. Because if I have any issues there, I can't bring myself to advocate for something and help drive them internally. Once we get kind of past that, then we can get into the technical stuff about the solution and if something's going to fit and where we're going to look and those types of things. How do we measure success? I mean, the, the biggest one in a large company is return on investment. That's what everybody's looking for. It's, it's numerical. You can metricize it. You know, Nobody can argue with it. But oftentimes, the length it takes to get my return on investment can be kind of long. So one of the things I look for is improved decisions. So did the work with the startup answer questions that would have taken us longer to answer? Or did they change the direction of our strategy because of what we learned? Part of that comes into the, some of these things that are a little bit more subjective. Um, you know, 
things that are a little bit softer, but in some ways could be more valuable than just a hard return on investment. Because if I'm going after a market, if I see a market in a certain way, but I sit down with Andre and we start talking about what's going on, things that I can't see inside of a company, because he runs in different circles, he sees the world differently than I do because what he does, he could maybe change our perspective. And there's a different pathway we need to go down. So what's the value on that? I don't know how to calculate ROI on that because I only get to go down one pathway, right? So I don't get both sets of data. But he maybe just saved me months worth of time, maybe pointed me in the right direction. That's something much more valuable for Boeing. To me, that's, you know, that really rings the bell. That's so interesting, Carlton, because that's exactly how we sell. We sell on an ROI basis to the operator or the lean manufacturing leader at facilities, but they have to get the check signed by the VP. And the VP is not going to sign the check unless there's something other than the ROI in it. They're signing the check because knowledge is retained, opportunity is created, right? And so for them, it's not just the hard, the hard ROI figures are a given. We're, we're expecting those. You're not really going to create a successful relationship unless the VP thinks that there's something that will really dramatically change the way they do business because otherwise it's just too hard. You know, getting a startup included in a large corporate is a lot of effort. Nobody's ever been fired for hiring SAP. Isn't that the phrase? That's a good comment. And maybe I'll add a little bit to that is that when you think about it, you know, all large companies want to reduce their cost, but that's not a differentiator. Boeing's not going to change the world and do some of the things we really want to do with like sustainability and some of the other big issues we have by saving money. We need to figure out how to bring a much more differentiated solution to the market for our customers. And that's really important. We really want to serve our customers well. So one of the ways that we might be able to do that is working with these smaller companies. So what Andre just said, I think is is maybe important. We need to underline that, maybe even bold that, highlight it, if you will. Absolutely agreed. So looking at the next few questions I have, I feel like they're mostly around communication and probably also sit somewhere with you know the point about culture you made early on in the conversation. When it gets to founder and champion relationships, so maybe for you, Carlton, to reflect on some of the founders you have worked with, or you, Andre, to reflect on some of the champions you worked with, you know, how do you create a really productive relationship there when the life of a founder, the expectation of, I would say, frequency of contact maybe, <laughs> might be a slightly different one? Um, how does one set expectations in a way that sets you up for the future? I see my primary job as making that person look good. Right. That's that's my task. And so for every large corporate that we work with, we throw everything at it, especially in the first nine months. That's an absolute must. You can't get through it. They become the number one priority for everything that you do. The benefit of working with with a company like Authentize is that we have a, a flexibility that they wouldn't see otherwise. So it is a very clear memory of me sitting in a room in New York with a company executive and they were trying to figure something out for a demo that was launching the next day and they were so pleased because on the other side of their chat was a startup that was responding to their kind of change requests on a minute by minute basis that person was really making the corporate champion i was sitting next to look great however like i think quite early on you need you want to separate the actual operational detail from the corporate champion and that's obviously going to happen within large large corporates, you need to have a counterparty for that. I noticed that I started getting 
you know, sp speaker bookings. I can't sell my own speaker bookings. You always need to have somebody who's going to wingman you, right? So <laughs> that's the reality in, in these corporate exchanges. Have somebody that you absolutely firmly trust that is out there doing the op operational. And so the way we work is we have a, a weekly or bi-weekly check-in with all of our large corporates where I am double-checking that all the challenges or opportunities and comments have been articulated properly and understood because sometimes you need to just have a different re release valve for these corporate relationships to work. But the, the actual main body of the work can't be done in that relationship, won't be done by the champions. You know, So you have to recognize that and also make sure that you have the people in your organization that you trust that can execute in parallel to you. Yeah, that's very good. I'd say from, from the, the corporate side, I try to, to split my communication on two sides. So I try to have the technical meetings, the project meetings, and those types of things in one setting. But usually it's the CEO of the company. I try to have a separate setting, whether it's let's grab coffee every couple of weeks, even if it's a virtual coffee and tag up. In those conversations, I do not set an agenda. There may be a couple of points I have to cover from time to time just to make sure we're, you know, checking a couple of things off the box, questions I need to ask, those types of things. But I leave them to be more freeform. They're very much relationship-based. What's going on in the marketplace? How's things in the company? What do you think's around the corner? And that type of thing. And the reason that I do that is that I've gotten a lot more value out of that time spent by leaving it freeform than structuring it like you would a project review. Because wherever that conversation needs to go, that's where it needs to go. And my mind may be in the complete wrong place. So for me, that's one of the ways I have to respect the partner I'm working with on the other side. Give them that opportunity to take that conversation wherever it needs to go. And sometimes it gets you know, very strategic. Like I remember one conversation I had years ago where a startup had a meeting. We'd done a lot of prep and it went completely sideways. And we didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't actually anything on the startup, but there was a lot of things we had to unpack there. And so we spent the entire meeting working through that. And at the end of the meeting... The decision and the guidance moving forward was do the exact same thing over again. We just had to change some things internally with the company that I was working at so that that would be successful. So it was learning on our side. But if I had no approach to meeting like that and had a free form, there wouldn't have been the value that I needed to learn out of that or what I needed to change as a champion. Yeah, yeah, I, I want to back that. Your opportunity really is to to create personal relationships. And sometimes these meetings only take five minutes because you get on the call and people are like, ah, don't have anything to say. Do you have anything to say? I think also the, the responsibility is while Carlton gives us the opportunity to be open, it's your responsibility to make sure that you're tickling any potential issue, any potential opportunity out of this. And that relates to another another thing. It, this is might be heretical in kind of VC world, but just on the operational side, it 100% pays to have as many of these conversations at as many levels as possible. So if we can get it paid for, we will subsidize putting people in to facilities full time. You know, because those conversations happen not only between Carlton and the CEO, or, but it's between everybody at the organization. And if all you're doing is interacting, you know, four times a week with different teams within the organization to get your deployment to work, you're going to miss those opportunities. So the chance is to really create relationships the same way Carlton describes, not only between the CEO and the corporate champion, but along the line with the different teams, if you can afford it, if you can get it 
somehow finance it 100% pays to get these people kind of on the ground 24-7. Yeah, and I'll add maybe one more comment there. It's kind of funny because what Andre just said is, actually, I wrote down in my notes to prepare for this, that one of the things that I really respect him as a leader is his ability to listen and ask questions. In fact, specifically, Andre, you do surprisingly well at triangulating, asking a bunch of different people the same question and then coming to a conclusion. I think that's a really strong skill that you have and so much so that you were just explaining to people how to do that. So that's awesome. Thank you for that. It's been a learning journey, certainly in the Boeing uh, relationship with Authentize has been almost, without doubt, our most successful in that. And it takes two to tango, as they say. We wouldn't have been able to do that without the openness on the other side to really share what the opportunities and challenges are. And uh, certainly plenty of both, aren't there, Colton? Very much so. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, like Carlton said, Andre, you have been doing this for a while and you are an experienced founder who has worked with big companies before. Thinking of some of the more early stage founders, um, startups that are new to this, trying to sort of pitch or sell into their first big corporates, it's sometimes really hard, I think, for those to read signals and understand where they sit in that process. You know, when do you stop pestering someone via email? When do you know it's not worth doing? But, you know, what are the signals that make you push forward? Um, we see this a lot in accelerators. Any Anything you guys can share around that? Yeah, I mean, I'll take a first stab at that. So from a sales perspective, Authentize has 4,500 accounts that we track. About a third of those, we make sure we touch base with every three months, right? We're not harassing them, but what we're doing is we're understanding that they may they may need it, but they, they may just not be ready right now. And certainly that's how I went with Boeing, right? Boeing, I touched base. I mean, I, I was in conversations for a year, then, you know, got into more conversations. Actually, several years, Carlton and I, I think, met in St. Louis for the first time, um, 2018 or something, 17. But then, you know, one summer... I had a conversation, went up to Seattle, nothing happened. And I'm like, this guy's gone dead on me. But this is because he couldn't get the internal traction to give me anything. So he was being silent because he, he didn't have anything to say, right? And you have to respect that. So it might not happen. But then, you know, touch base with them again, touch base with them again, and remind them that you exist, remind them that you have the solution to their problems. And the next time that person sees an opening, they may just propose it. There's no anger, in my opinion, if you send an, a person an email every couple of months, it's, it's just a reminder to, the, to them that you exist. That's really how I'm looking at it. So that's a, one of the things I would say in terms of the young founders looking at this or not so young founders trying to get corporate relationships. The second thing that I've learned is if you're trying to pursue a corporate relationship, it's not your place to say no. And one of the biggest challenges I have with the way startups are currently set up is the venture-backed industry very much proposes and you know that they want to see recurring revenue they don't like NIE they don't like you know basically being paid other than for a kind of license fee and obviously those two things don't really work with each other the, the corporate might ask you to go a place that you had not considered going before that's a fantastic market signal especially if you're being paid for it you can get license revenue afterwards, right? We expect basically in the first year, 
only about a quarter of our revenue from that corporate will be licensed revenue. By the third year, about three quarters of our revenue will be li licensed revenue. So my basic point is don't shy away from non-licensed revenue, non-recurring revenue. Try and make the relationship work. Be the yes man. Don't say no because there's enough no's in the organization for the champion to be dealing with. And then try and form it in, in the direction that you want to go as you go along with it. Your VCs will tell you that's absolutely not the way you should be working, but ignore them. It's for the good of your company. What do you think, Carlton? I don't know if I want to add anything. That was a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> maybe the maybe the only thing that I could possibly add to that is what Andre's kind of highlighting here is, is sometimes the conflicts that we get in between big and large companies, and you do have to recognize that. So in a large company, I, you know, I kind of started out early on and said, you know, timing here isn't quite right. And Andre gave his story of trying to find the right timing inside of Boeing. And the people that are going to help you may not have the answer to all of your questions. Sending those emails is fine. You may not get a response. You know, we all have email soup and we've got to go through and delete everything, you know, every morning. But it may not be because there's any emotion that there's any answers. It may be the absence of that. Like, I don't have anything to give you. So I'm not going to hop on a call and just tell you I have nothing for you, right? That wastes your time. I'm not going to do that. But a kind reminder from time to time that, hey, I'm out here. If you want to talk be glad to do it. I think that's great because that priority list inside of a large company is constantly changing. And there, there's going to be times when what you have is going to come up on, you know, higher on that priority list and you want to be there as a potential option. Yeah. My only real regret is not being considered when the time was right. I get so angry when I see that they pick somebody else in a non-competitive process that I wasn't part of, even though I was there, you know, six months ago. So, I'm so angry about it. So that's your biggest risk. If that's the downside, then a monthly or, or bi-monthly email isn't that big of a deal. It can be as simple as, hey, we've got a cool new feature I thought of you when we built it, you know, or mm. we just formed this partnership that I know you're working with this organization and whatever it is, something that is customized a little bit to the person that you're speaking to, because obviously nobody wants blanket bombs, but a, ch a check-in, just a short one goes a long way. Absolutely. And what do you guys think? How do accelerators fit in there? What are the characteristics of a good one that will really bring results for both startups and or corporates? You know, from what I've seen on the accelerator side, I really appreciate the structure that it brings. One of, the, one of the conversations I've often had with startups is that they're kind of in this world of ambiguity, trying to find out where to go. Where is their customer? What's the right product, et cetera, et cetera. And I think an accelerator brings some structure in and allows me on the corporate level to interact with a startup easier, smoother because of that structure. There's things that happen behind the scene that I never see. You know, I'm, I don't work in the accelerator. I don't know what kind of magic is going on there. But what comes out the other side is that The discussions are more polished. The questions and the conversation just runs a lot better. It's more productive. So whatever magic's in the bottle there, it, it seems to be working. Yeah, and, and maybe one, one way that accelerators make it work is just increase the frequency of those conversations, allow you to learn. Because if you're having you know a conversation in one month and then a conversation three months later, I don't want to say, Gabby, that the accelerators don't teach you, but I did really appreciate in the accelerator that we went through having dozens of conversations with people. And each time I'm learning to listen a bit better, each time I'm learning to tell a story a bit better. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have that learning, even if I had the same amount of conversations, but you know, each a month apart, I wouldn't have had the same 
same learning. So I really think that that density of of communication and then trying to find the problem statements that overlap with your skill set or your capabilities at the startup, that makes a big difference when, when it comes down to accelerators. Yeah, agreed. So I only have one last question. Do you have any advice for startups facing the challenge of competing values between cost, sustainability and growth? That's a that's a huge question. You saved the, the hard one for last. I, I think in some perspective those those feel like competition, especially, you know, cost and growth. If you're in a startup, you're you're a cash flow business, you have a runway, you have in a, in a sense you got a fixed income, is the way I look at it. So what does that mean? It means that there are limits to what you can do financially. At the same time, you've got a chance to potentially capture a growing market. Right. And the larger chunk of that market that you capture, the more successful you'll be on the backside. And I've had a lot of companies, you know, which one of these directions do I go? Do I try to save money or do I try to grow my business? I don't really have, you know, strong advice that one is better than the other. But what I, w what I would say is you've got to figure out really what you want to do. Because if you sit there and twiddle your thumbs, you're burning your most valuable asset, which is time. And so if you know which direction you want to go, I, I think that's that's the part that, that I think is the most important. I, I would completely agree. You know, I think coming up with the direction is a rel relatively rational thought process and conversation with you and your advisors. Because from my perspective, the most important thing to do is to invest commensurate with the market opportunity. So if you determine realistically that your market opportunity in the niche that you're in at that time, right, not talking about any future growth prospects at that time is half a billion dollars, you know, a hundred million dollars, then don't invest, you know, a hundred million dollars, don't invest $50 million because you'll never make the money back. Right. But if you think that the market opportunity is a trillion dollars, literally a trillion dollars, everybody needs this product all the time. And there's almost no competition, then invest $10 billion. You know, I, I think that's a lot of the time startups get that wrong. And so authentize you know, we started in a very small niche and we focused on making the, the business sustainable without raising additional funds because it was important for us because we were in such a small niche. Now, we think that what we've done in this niche translates to other industries, but I couldn't promise that. And therefore, I never raised money for that opportunity. I raised money only commensurate with the niche opportunity that we were in at the time. And now we have a business that's sustainable. It's basically a cash cow and we can start thinking about growing into the other businesses that we think as opportunities. But I don't fault organizations and startups that go and, you know, raise a hundred million dollars because their situation, their niche, their market opportunity may be completely different. So it really, for me, it's an honest, rational conversation about how big is the actual very specific market that you're targeting with your product today. Invest always commensurate with that market opportunity. The market opportunity may grow, your product portfolio might grow, your you know, different things might change. But right now, invest only with what's commensurate with your market opportunity. So that I think solves a lot of the, the that kind of question that you just, just asked, even though it's a big one. Mm. Amazing. Thank you both for your great answers. And to end this, I would like to see if Andre or Carlton have a question they would like to pose to the audience. Uh, my my question would be to ask, what are you as a corporate doing to empower people like Carlton? And there's nothing there's nothing to say that that not everybody in an organization can be a champion. Everybody that works at Boeing has a problem that they're familiar with. 
So what are we doing to empower that person to say, hey, I have a problem and I have identified this solution. How can we get to work together? Right. And so Carlton is really good at bringing that conversation in, but he also feels like he's been empowered to have that conversation. What can we do to broaden the pool of Carlton's in an organization like Boeing? You know, we have accelerators, we have mechanisms that can strengthen startups and strengthen the teams. In the corporate world has tried several things over the years. In fact, it's become cyclical. I've started to see case studies come out on this. Um, on It's not just the investing in the VC cycle. We all, we, we all know that. We're, we're talking about, you know, like internal innovation um, and how you bring something from outside of the company in and integrate it, not, not the money side. And I think we have work to do on the corporate side on getting that more structured. Right now, I think it's kind of ad hoc. And I, I, that's what I'm hearing Andre say is that, you know, how do we empower this? To me, it's, you know, how do we, how do we structure this and make it repeatable so that when you, you find success, you learn those lessons and you do it over again? Because if you have individuals doing it and they're successful, you want the company to benefit from that and to grow more of those. If that person leaves the company or if they take a different job or something like that, then the company loses out because they don't have a way to pass that on. So maybe a different perspective, but I do strongly agree with what Andre said. Great. Yeah, there's a lot to think about, a lot of work to be done. But let's see, maybe there's other people out there that want to contribute to the discussion. Um, we're always happy to hear what everyone thinks. And thank you so much both. Thank you, Carlton. Thank you, Andre. Um, really enjoyed uh, this episode with you guys. I hope you enjoyed it too. Thank you. Very much so. Thank you. listening everyone for information about meta and the work we do head to our website meta.partners there you'll be able to find links to our blog the company linkedin page and more information about the team if you have any questions about today's episode or suggestions for future shows our twitter handle is meta talks all in one word and you'll also be able to find the team and all sorts of exciting things we're up to on there We'll be back with a new episode of the podcast next week. Until then, stay well and stay in touch.